Welcome back to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. This is Bill Allen. On today's episode, I've got Anchor Loans CEO and President Steve Pollock. Steve has been in the hard money lending business for the last 21 years with Anchor Loans, and he was a private money lender seven years before that. He was an optometrist. He was a poker player. He's got an incredible background and story. We talk a lot about kind of the mindset and different changes that happen as you develop along your career. We talk about the hard money lending space right now, what it looks like, what you, what you should be expecting from hard money lenders, the real estate market during this pandemic of the coronavirus, and, uh, and all the things in between. It's an absolute amazing interview. I love talking to him. He's an easy guy to get along with, and I really enjoyed uh, spending some time with him and getting to know him. He's, they're a great resource, Anchor Loans, for our seven-figure flipping community. A lot of our members are using them. They provide us great leverage and allow companies to grow their business through, through lending. We need access to capital, right? So um, I'm going to roll the theme music and roll right into this, but you're not going to want to miss this great episode with Steve Pollock, the president and CEO of Anchor Loans. So stay tuned. Hey, everybody. I'm here with the president and CEO of Anchor Loans. So I know a lot of you guys right now have been you know, going back to everything that's going on with the coronavirus, with the lending environment. We've done some interviews with other hard money lenders in the past. And a lot of you guys in the seven-figure uh, altitude and runway group are using Anchor Loans as one of your hard money lenders for your flips, which um, kind of led me to, to them years ago. I uh, got to know Shane Lex. He brought uh, the company in. We worked out a deal to get our members some great financing options with them. And I'm excited to talk to, for the first time for me, to talk to Steve Pollock, who's the president and CEO of Anchor Loans. So Steve, welcome. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Bill. I appreciate being here. Welcome to the opportunity. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because, uh, I mean, as the president and CEO, it means different things to different people, but you were one of the founders of Anchor Loans. And before you started the company, you were also a private money lender. So I think you have a lot of experience from lots of different areas of uh, angles and, and ways to look at this that I think is going to be valuable to the listeners. Because I do feel as a wholesaler and a flipper myself, I know that the lending environment right now is, is an itch, it's interesting. It's changing. Um, we, we've seen a little bit more stability now than we did maybe a month or two ago, right? But mm -hmm. um, so I think like seeing behind the curtain a little bit about all of that and how you guys operate, I think it's going to be valuable for them. And um, it's one of the biggest issues and challenges that a lot of new flippers have is kind of finding financing. So maybe we can go through a little bit about your background, uh, where, you, where you came from, how you got into the money lending space. Sure, I'll start way at the beginning. I won't make it too long. I've been around for a little bit longer uh, than, than most people in the industry. Uh, but I was uh, born and raised in New York, came out to the West Coast to go to school at UCLA. So I went to, did my undergraduate work at UCLA and actually then went up to UC Berkeley for four years and got my doctorate in optometry. I was actually an eye doctor for 10 years. So um, I did that in Northern California. I had my own practice, started it from day one, right as soon as I graduated out of school, started my practice, built it up, took in a partner. And I realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so I actually ended up after 10 years selling my practice to my partner and going out into the real estate world. Um, and that's kind of where I started with real estate was when I was an optometrist, about four or five years into being uh, a solo practitioner, I started to buy rental properties. So I started by single families and duplexes and triplexes. Uh, not, no, no multifamily units, at least not at that time. Uh, but I was buying rental properties and became educated about real estate. And so when I sold my, my optometry practice, I went into real estate full time. 
and I started to buy and sell properties, what we used to call rehabbing properties, which is now called flipping properties, right? The same, the same concept of buying, adding value, and then reselling to an end user, to a homeowner. And I did that for a few years um, until the downturn of the 90s hit. And it became somewhat challenging to sell properties in that market, especially when you were buying them, not knowing what the value was going to be nine months later when the market was declining. And so I was still, I still held on to my real estate properties. Um, and I was just kind of looking around for what am I going to do next? And I kind of fell into a, into a career of being a professional poker player for seven years. And I made my living playing poker for seven years. So young guys like yourself oftentimes get fascinated by that. This was, this was before uh, the era of the whole card camera where people was on TV or whatever before Chris Moneymaker made it kind of famous back in 2001, 2002 and so forth. But I met my future anchor co-founders via playing poker. We were all poker players. We were making money. The money we were making, we turned out to reinvest into the real estate market by being private money lenders. And that's what we call trustee investors at that time. And that's how we became educated about that. Uh, one of the co-founders of Anchor Loans was Dan Harrington, the 1995 world champion of poker. Yep, I remember Dan. Um, and, and, and so the three of us formed, we, we realized that we were investing money through third-party brokers and who are maybe weren't necessarily underwriting and originating loans as well as we were would like to do in ourselves. So that's the reason we formed Anchor in 1998, was really as a, as a control mechanism for investing our own money and our friends and family money. And, and we started out with about $8 million of our own money investing in 1998. And we grew that very quickly over the course of about six, seven years to where in 2005, we originated about $175 million worth of loans, which was our pre-downturn pre uh, peak at that point in time. So, and I can go through the whole history of Anchor, but that's a little bit about myself and kind of how I came to here. So kind of come through a, from an education side for being trained with a optometry um, to a, a poker playing situation is, and it's almost like when I moved into real estate, especially when we started to buy real estate at the trustee sale post downturn. And that's a whole nother aspect where we bought about 1200 properties in a, in a, in a case of about two years uh, when, when all the banks were liquidating their properties in, in 10 and 11 and so forth. Operating in that environment was almost like slow motion compared to poker. Poker, you got to make decisions in like 15, 20, 30 seconds. And, and, and real estate, you have days. You can gather information. You can sit. You can, and you can really analyze it. So, um, you know, making, making risk-related decisions and being a good lender and helping our, helping our clients, our borrowers, uh, be good partners to, to be successful has always been a key to our success. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. Some really exciting There's a lot stuff. of information there. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. I, I know you touched on a couple of things. I, I wrote some notes down. And so, you know, being educated like you were, so, you know, coming out with a doctorate, right? Um, do you, how do you feel like that um, either helped you or hindered you in business, the business life and, and things? Because a lot of people ask, I have a master's degree in, in aeronautical engineering and I went to test pilot school and I did like millions of dollars the government has pumped into my education. And now, I mean, I'm running a house flipping and wholesaling business and I'm not really using any of it. But there are some really tangible things that I learned there that I feel like that and the military for me have allowed me to become a great business owner. So is there something there that you feel like uh, for somebody who has that background um, in education that could be a, a positive and a negative potentially? Yeah, hundred um, percent. And I would challenge you. I, I believe your education probably has helped you in a lot of different ways here. I think you, I think you said that, but maybe not the aeronautical engineering part of it, but your education certainly has, as it helped, has it helped me. I think no matter what the discipline, no matter what you study, education at its core 
is trying to get people to understand and be better at critical thinking. And the critical thinking can apply anywhere across the board, right? You, you need critical thinking um, as a five-year-old to understand when, when and where can I cross the street? Do I have to hold my dad's hand? Is the light green? Is the car coming? You, know, you, you have to make all those decisions. And as we grow and as we become business owners, uh, critical thinking gets applied across the board. Do I want to invest in that property? Do I, do I not want to invest in that property? What's the right price to buy that property at? Right? Is there a right price? Sometimes there is no right price, right? You can, because you can't, you can't uh, turn that property into a, an economic success for you. So I think that um, education across the board is always useful. You always, I'm always, for me personally, it's kind of one of my passions. I'm always reading, I'm always learning. Um, reading all sorts of books, listen to podcasts, websites, so forth. And I encourage other people to do the same. So I, I suspect that, that deep down inside you, you probably feel the same way in regards to your education and helping you become a business owner. You say you're, you're only doing this, but I, I, I think that, that that word only probably doesn't apply. It's right for you at this point in time. It's bringing you success. It's bringing you, it's your passion. It's your joy. Um, if not, you would be doing something else. So I, I think it's really valuable. Yeah, somebody asked me on a on a podcast that I was interviewed on. They said, um, "What what is the what would you change if you could go back in time and do it all over again?" And I said, "Because I, I, I thought about it." He gave me the the questions like pre show, right? And I really thought about that one. I said, "You know what? I sure I could go back and say I wouldn't do that deal that I lost seventy thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars on, or I would have joined a mastermind group or educated myself in real estate, or I would have started as an entrepreneur when I was twenty two instead of you know thirty five. And um, but I went back and I said, you know what? I wouldn't change anything because I needed to go on. The path that I'm on right now is the path that I needed to go. It's the journey that I needed to, to go on. And I'm being led in a certain direction and pulled in different directions and making decisions. And so I, I, totally, I totally agree with you. I wouldn't go back and do anything differently. Um, of course, I wish that I, I, a lot of the mindset that I have right now, I had when I was 18 or 20 or 25. And I, I could have made those different decisions or potentially had um, like unlocked more potential that I had in myself that I was really kind of wasting at the time, I felt like, looking back. But you said something else, and I'll, I'll if, if anybody's been can listening just, to podcast, Can I just interrupt yeah, and tell absolutely. a story? I don't know if you ever heard the famous Kobe Bryant story. It goes right along that line. But Kobe Bryant, when he was uh, on his retirement tour, the last year that he was playing, one of the last places he played, I think it was in either Detroit or Chicago, one of the last games he played, one of the reporters asked him, he said, Kobe, you're retiring now. You've been in the league 18 years. You have all this, inf you have this wealth of information. What would you go back and tell your 17-year-old self just coming into the NBA to change to help you be a better player? And he said, it wouldn't matter. I wouldn't have listened. And that's so true. You know, everything that we do now has led up to the point where we are now, right? So if, you th if, if people say, because I'm asked the same question that you just articulated, and I, I answer exactly the same way, nothing. I have no regrets because if I change something that I think maybe would have been better in the past, maybe I wouldn't be at this point where I am now. Maybe I wouldn't be as passionate about what I'm doing now, as happy as I am what I'm doing now. So why risk that? And if, and, and if, I'm, if there's something wrong right now, if, if I'm not happy, if I'm not passionate, if there's something I could be doing better, then fix now because you can't fix five minutes ago or five years ago. You can only fix now. Yeah. You know, a lot of people think of the past and the present instead of the present and the future. And I think we really like the good entrepreneurs, the people that can really build businesses and go further are the people that are looking in the future, working on the future, and then also looking at today. 
And uh, obviously the past is something that we learn from that we can not make those same mistakes over and over again, but it's really important not to dwell in that stuff. And I see a lot of people that they're kind of, you know, stuck on that and say, move on, what's next and, and figure out where you're going. The, the, the poker thing, uh, you probably saw me light up a little bit and you mentioned it. So um, yeah, when I, uh, when I was in, in college and, and high school, we played a lot of poker and I was really uh, loved it. Um, I, and when I, went to, when I went to graduate school in Ohio, they had this, that's when the World Series of Poker was getting really big, it was like 2002, 2003, um, right around then. And I actually, um, I actually played in a tournament that was a qualifi qualifier for the World Series of Poker. And I got to the final table as the last four people. And um, I just missed, they gave the top two spots a World Series of Poker slot. I was active duty and E1 or 01 in the Navy. I was an ensign in the Navy up at this Air Force base. And I, I was really, I would love to have played in the World Series. There's a couple of people that listen that I know uh, fairly closely that have played. And I love playing poker, absolutely love it. So, um, but you mentioned fast decisions. And um, I think it's, it's really interesting to think about that. You're making critical decisions like uh, you're doing uh, mathematical equations, probability, things like that, looking at the reading the, the, the other players and things and, and analyzing information and data that's coming into your brain and making decisions fairly quickly. And it's interesting that you said that because when I look back at my military career, flying helicopters, and we're low to the ground, we're flying fairly fast for as low as we are. We have to make decisions on a $30 million helicopter with maybe you have 10 SEALs in the back and you got your crew of four that are inside this helicopter. And as the aircraft commander, you have to make all the decisions. Then you could be in the lead aircraft of three other aircraft that are with you and you're making all these mission decisions and they're critical decisions, life or death stuff. And I think that is another aspect that really makes a, uh, like the able, being able to make decisions quickly, like you talked about critical thinking and being able to make decisions. Like it's taking all the information that you have, make the best decision that you possibly can. And then if more information becomes available down the road, you add that in and then maybe adjust your decision. But you can stand by your decision, you can make it, you can make it under pressure. And it seems like, like what you were talking about with poker playing for seven years, it probably added some of that a lot like flying helicopters for me was. And uh, it's always been kind of a, a rush for me and stuff like that. So that's, that's a cool story. Yeah, you ever play with uh, Johnny Chan by any chance? I have played with him one time in a, in a, in a qualifier as it was in, in actually in Las Vegas when the World Series of Poker used to be held in the old Binions tournament before it moved to the Rio. And I played with him at, at a table there, yeah. Is he as good as everybody says he is? He, he, is, he is really good, yes. Awesome. The, the best player I think who ever lived unfortunately passed away very early unfortunately from a from a drug problem was stewie younger i don't know if you've ever heard yep. of stewie but i have he 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 was the not only the best he was not he was most people think that he was the best poker player who ever lived but there is not one person alive who does not believe he is the best gin player in the world that's ever lived hmm. it's, he, he was phenomenal he used to play gin with people and after four four discards he'd be able to tell you you have this, 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 and this. Wow, it's amazing. I, I still remember reading uh, like one of the first, one of the first like self-help books I ever read, and it's not really a self-help book, but it's a, it's a, it was uh, Doyle Brunson's book, Super System. So mm -hmm. that's one of the first like training books outside of my college. I would read like you know fictional books. Is it first like nonfiction kind of like self-education training type book? So I was thinking about that. Everybody talks about Rich Dad, Poor Dad. The first one that I ever picked up was Super System. Super and System. It was the I, Bible of poker for so many years. It, it, it was. And I read it cover to cover. I was studying it. And it's, that's like the, that passion that I had in getting better at what I do. And so I, I think that's another thing for uh, successful people is they're constantly developing and training and trying to become the best. And like you said, 
personal and professional development is one of my core values. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly reading. I'm doing all that stuff. All right. We've talked for a long time and haven't really talked okay. about any hard money lending, right? <laughs> so, so when you started- well, that's, bo that's boring. Which is, but this is the fun stuff here. <laughs> oh yeah, it is. I, I mean, like, I think the interesting thing about what we talk about most of the time is is we think it's the we think we need that stuff. We think we need the thing. We need to understand how to swing the hammer. We need to understand how to uh, do the marketing. And but ultimately, we really need to understand ourselves before we can go any further. And if we really want to grow, we need to build the foundation of who we are, what our core values are, who who else we attract, um, who comes onto the team. So I, I mean, I'm happy to spend as much time as possible helping those that are listening on things like that because that's that's really the that's really the thing. Like we. We think that there's this silver bullet or this easy, easy button to, to what we do. And we just need to know, like the system is understanding you, building out the core values, knowing the people, your team, your staff. I'm sure you have a, a big staff. There's people that you have to manage and lead and, and run an organization. And that is when you build that foundation, you have the right people around you and you're operating on a, a system of, you, you strap all these other things on around those great people and you lead them in the direction that you want to go. You get them all run, rowing in the same direction. That's when you can do really great things. And if we can figure that out early, so if I could figure that out 10 years ago, 20 years ago, then that's when you can really start building something. So I'm jealous of the 22, 23, 25 year olds that are figuring it out right now, listening to the podcast and, and starting to learn some of this stuff. Um, I wish that I listened to my parents, my grandparents a lot more than I did. Like you said, it doesn't matter. I wouldn't have listened, right? Um, so I get to go down to Pensacola and fly with the new flight students now. And I see these, you know, 23 year old, um, I, we used to, we, we call them kids, but we're not supposed to. So we call them, you know, young men or young, young women um, who are coming up and just seeing that and seeing the amount of, um, of interest that they have in their eyes, the excitement, it's, it just tells me that our country is going in the right direction, even when uh, you might not think it is, or whoever's listening might not think it is. There's some really great people out there, young people that are doing some amazing things. So, okay. Anchor loans. Tell us a little bit yes. about anchor loans. Like uh, how did, how did it start? You just, uh, you, you were doing lend, you were doing private lending and then you decided, Hey, let's, uh, let's band together. Let's start this, this company. And how did that, how did that go? So we were, we were private investors, as I mentioned, and we actually started the company in my partner's spare bedroom. Um, there was just the two of us. I'd be sitting at a desk like this and he'd be right behind me on a desk like that. We'd both be on the phone, be talking over each other. Um, he was the deal guy. He would bring in uh, the borrowers and have contacts, and I was more the operations guy, uh, dealing with title, escrow, loan documents, and so forth. And as we as we started to grow, uh, we quickly moved into an office in Santa Monica, and and we hired up some people. And so for many years, we were a small shop, small regional shop, mostly lending in Southern California. Uh, we expanded a little bit into Northern California. We are mostly a California-based lender. And we, we grew from, like I mentioned, about 30 million in originations our, our, our first year and a half or so to 175 in 2005, 175 million. 2005, we, we became very concerned about the real estate market. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you how smart I was to predict the subprime crisis and everything that was coming. Otherwise, there'd be a lot of different outcomes here. We'd be, I'd be much richer, which is not the case. Um, but we knew that the real estate market was squirrely, especially here in Los Angeles. The main thing we saw was 15% home price appreciation for three straight years, which had never happened in history before. Didn't understand what was going on. But we did understand that there was something wrong with the real estate market. 
So we actually tightened our underwriting guidelines in 2006 and we did less loans in 2006 because we wanted to be careful with our investor money. Um, and then when 2006, nothing happened, we did it again in 2007. We, we tightened, we did less loans in 2007, even though the amount of business walking in our door was double. We were advising a lot of our borrowers and clients to be careful about what they were doing. And so that's the reason we actually did so well in 08 and 09. We're one of the few companies that's been around this long because most of the companies that were competitors of ours in 05, 06, and 07 are either very small right now or didn't survive the 08, 09 debacle. And many of the competitors that we are in the same uh, lending niche with right now are mostly post-downturn startups. They've been around since 10 or 11 or 12 or whatnot. They're good companies. Um, and, and, they serve, and they serve the need of the clients, clients uh, members of your, of your organization. And that's, and that's great. There's a, there's a need for, the, for them. Uh, they're, they're just, some of them are experiencing their first recession, their first punch in the mouth, if you will, yep. where you know, we've gone through this. This is our third time around. We experienced the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s, 08 and 09. And so we've, we, unlike many of our competitors, have never paused or stopped our lending. We've, we've been lending all through this. Uh, yes, it's true that we've, under, we've uh, tightened some of our underwriting guidelines, appropriate, appropriately so, as, as I think most people would think so, but we've never stopped lending. And, and, and we're, continuing, uh, we're continuing to take on new borrowers. Okay, I, I have a question for you. I think it'd be interesting for the listeners to hear as you were getting started up, is, was it mostly your money that you guys were lending out? Was it other people's money? And then what does it look like right now? Is it mostly uh, institutional and um, a Wall Street type money that you guys yep. have? You use uh, private lenders, what does it look like? So when we first started, it was, it was mostly our own money and our, and our friends and family money. So it was every, everybody who invested in the company, most of, most of it was my, my, uh, myself and my two partners' money. That was most of it. And then some of our close family and some of our close friends, I knew everybody who was investing with us personally. And that was the case probably for the first three, four years. And when we were first, when we first started the company, the individual investors would be named on the deeds of trust. So they'd be directly on the deeds of trust, right? And sometimes we would have more than one investor on a deed of trust and so forth. The problem with that, um, while it's good and safe for the investors, it's, it's not as good for the borrowers because uh, your, for example, on your payoff, just, just procedural issues, on your payoff, you have to get four signatures to sign off to get your, get your loan paid off instead of just one in a day. It may take four in, in a week or two weeks or something like that. So, so there, there were, it's not the best operating model. It's also not the safest for the investors because if an investor, let's say, wants to invest $100,000 with Anchor, right? And if our average loan is $300,000, it's, it's either going to put all $100,000 onto one loan or you're going to be better off taking that and diversifying. Well, if you're going to diversify, it becomes an operational nightmare to put them on five or seven different loans. So what we did eventually, we moved away from individual investors and moved into a fund situation where we created a fund where investors are investing in a, in a fund, kind of like a mutual fund, and then the fund was doing the investing. So, and, and then through the years, we've transitioned always with our balance sheet, Anchor's balance sheet and senior capital debt, right? Some of the big financial institutions supply debt to us. Um, and that's part of the reason we've always had uh, the ability to continue to fund through this 
black swan event through the pandemic that we're experiencing now because of our 22 year, 21 year track record, uh, because of what we've done in the downturn, we were able to, to assure our capital providers that we know what we're doing, that we've done this before, that we're prepared for this, uh, that we're asset managing in the appropriate way, that we're risk managing in the appropriate way, that we're originating in the appropriate way. And they, and they were confident about that. So we've moved into a situation where we started with individual investors into a fund situation, into now where about one third of the capital that Anchor uses to fund loans is, is via funds from third party high net worth private investors. And two thirds is our balance sheet that's supported by credit facilities from financial institutions. Okay. So that's our capital structure. Nice. I think that's helpful for most people because, uh, you know, some... Uh, we have private money that comes in. We have uh, a lot of our members just use, you know, friends and family, like you talked about to get started where they have maybe a million or 2 million, but you get up to $175 million of, of lending, right? It's not everybody in your neighborhood and your community and your church that you know no. that you're then brokering their money. And there's a lot of guidelines that come along with that stuff and underwriting and, and yes. making sure that you're, every state has different rules and regulations and laws and things. So as you start expanding, it becomes a, a big operational um, uh, puzzle. So how, how many people work for Anchor Loans right now? So we have directly working for us is a hundred and we have 150 people in the office. Uh, we also have full-time inspectors that are out in the field all throughout the country. And we have uh, account executives that are in the field all throughout the country. And then we also have as consultants, uh, a, a fairly large technology team that's built our technology over the last 10 years and they're offshore in Brazil. Awesome. And then what, how many states, like give us a background of like kind of where you guys land, what it looks like if somebody wants to use you guys in the future, what does it look like? So we're in, we're basically nationwide. We're in 47 states plus DC. We're just not in Vermont, Utah, and I want to say, I can't I get them mixed up, South Dakota or North Dakota. I can't remember which one. Uh, those three states require licenses for us to do what we do. And we're in the process of getting licenses. So I would say by the end of 2020, we'll be in all 50 states. But th frankly, there's not a lot of flipping business that's going on in, in South Dakota or North Dakota right now, or even Vermont. Um, so basically, we're nationwide. We're in all the major metropolitan uh, large cities that really where this thrives the best. Okay, I'm going to ask for some very close friends of mine in Utah. Like, what is the problem with Utah? How come nobody is there? Is it really like tight regulations? Are there certain, a lot of hoops that have to get jumped through? And, and that's it, because there is a lot of flipping going on in Salt Lake. Uh, pretty much yeah, all there is. Utah. There is, and we'd like to be in Utah, but Utah is um, probably next to Nevada, one of the most difficult states to get licensed in. We've been licensed in Nevada for five or seven years. We've been audited by the state licensing division every single year with no issues, but that's just the process there. But Nevada requires a primary, um, every state has a different name for it, whether it's responsible individual or, or, or whatnot. But I, and I forget what the Nevada calls it, but there's a primary person that needs to be on the corporate license to, to be licensed in, in Utah. And they require that you have a certain level of activity. And I've been involved in over 25,000 lending loans. And I don't, I don't qualify. I don't qualify because my name isn't directly on the file as the account executive for those files. I only oversaw it, so I don't qualify. So they're, they're, we, we've had to figure out a creative way to get around that in order to get our life. We, and we're there, we're, we're two thirds of the way there, but yeah, it, it is challenging in Utah. And, and other than maybe, you know, a NIMBY mentality of we want to 
keep what we want here and not in my backyard, allowing more people to come in and do it. But I, I don't know what the reasoning is there. Yeah, well, I, well, I'm glad you answered that question because I knew that I know that I'm going to get that following this interview. Like three states, they're not in three states, and one of them is Utah. What's going on? Because I, I just interviewed Tyler Jensen. We're doing this um, like seven day flip TV show on YouTube with him, and he just said, like, if you can find a lender in Utah, I'll use them. Like we're doing 40 deals a year. I need to figure out how to grow and scale. I want to do 50, 60, 80, and uh, we need some support, financial support. So I figured I'd ask for him. So. He can hang on a few more months. We'll be there. Oh, they'll, they'll <laughs> hang on a few more months. If, uh, if you, you guys will see what they're doing when we start launching these shows, they'll be hanging on for a while. Their, awesome. their team is incredibly impressive. So, um, okay, well, let's talk a little bit, uh, I think about what's going on right now. So you, you talked about um, you tightened the guidelines in 2006, then again in 2007, you kind of saw it. It's interesting. I, I interviewed Bruce Norris on the podcast, and he told me a lot of the things that he was talk, seeing in, in California at that time and all the stuff he talked a little bit about right now. So I'm interested to hear kind of what, from the lending side, like what happened, what's going on now. And um, I, obviously, our listeners are probably uh, most um, interested in what's going on right now and, and in the future that you see from the lending space. So interesting. Bruce is a good friend of mine. Um, been friends for many, many years. Very, really, really smart man. Uh, so what's going on right now is there's a little bit of the herd mentality. A lot of the, a lot of the uh, lenders in the niche, in the fix and flip niche, um, are especially the larger lenders are supported by capital that is, for all intentional purposes, coming out of Wall Street, whether it's uh, REITs that are supporting um, you know, some of the larger firms in the Southeast or, or, or whether it's uh, banking institutions or, or whatnot. Now, the, the REITs in particular have gotten hit pretty hard in regards to margin calls. And so that's kind of flowed down into, into their subsidiaries and part of the reasons why the capital has gotten frozen. Um, and I think that they're beginning to work some of that out. I'm seeing that some of those, some of those lenders are now coming back into the market, marketplace with, um, with underwriting guidelines that are way tighter than they were before, but at least they're coming back, which is good. O opening up capital and freeing capital into the marketplace, which I always think is a good thing. But I, I think what it is is, uh, and unfortunately, it's kind of the herd mentality of Wall Street in that as soon as somebody senses a problem, you know, like with a herd of buffalo, right? As soon as there's a problem, they all they all tend to go in one way or they go the other way, right? They'll, and so and and so that and that's and that's exactly the reason that led us into the the financial crisis of 08, 09. Everybody was saying like, oh yeah, these 125% loans, there's nothing wrong with these loans. Everybody's doing it, so we should be doing it because there's so much money to be made. And nobody was really looking at was well, the collateral underlying really really giving us safety? Are we really having enough mitigation of the risk here? And, but that was, that was the herd mentality. And so it's the same thing here now. They're all saying, who can predict the value of a piece of real estate nine months from now based upon what the economy is doing today? And the reality is most of us cannot. Most of us can't say for sure that a property that we think will be worth $300,000 after repair nine months from now will be worth $300,000 because is, is the real estate valuations gonna to start to decline? because of all the unemployment we have. The, and, and so that, that's, I'm just using their argument of what they're saying. So therefore, if we don't know, why are we providing capital into that space when there's so much uncertainty? Therefore, the best reaction is to freeze it up and to stop and wait till the clarity is, is there again for us to have surety 
I'm making loans out there. My argument to that is that's only one piece of the puzzle. The real estate market as it stands right now across the United States is in a completely different place than it was in 08 or 09. There, there's, there is trillions, literally trillions of dollars of equity in real estate right now that wasn't existing in 08 and 09. There are places like Houston that have over 40%, this was an astonishing statistic to me, over 40% of the homes in Houston are owned free and clear. That, wow. that didn't exist before, right? Yeah. I think the number in Las Vegas is something like over 25% of the homes there are owned free and clear. There's just a ton of equity. And what does that mean? That means that if somebody loses their job, they're, they're not in a spot where they, they're a, a forced seller right away, especially with everything the government is doing to react to this in regards to forbearance on owner-occupied loans, in, in, in regards to um, you know, the, the government service agencies, the Fannies, the Freddies, whatnot, working with the, the notes, they, the homeowners that they bought that they're servicing and helping them uh, get through this temporary crisis, which I believe this is what this is, it's temporary, we just don't know how long it's going to be. So what you see in the marketplace today and what a lot of people latch onto uh, uh, on the news reports today are reports of the tremendous amount of, of decline in the real estate transactions that are occurring, which is true. Transactions are going down. Well, what's happening with the values? Values are staying stable, if not rising a little bit. I saw a report where for April, month over month of the year before, they're up 4% across the, across the country on values. The reason is, if you're not forced to sell, you're taking your, your property off the market. So yes, there's less transactions, and there's, but there's also far, far less distressed sellers that are forcing values down, right? So it's still a balanced market. The market's still speaking and it's still a balanced market. It's not this overwhelming buyer's market that existed in, in 08 when properties were declining 10, 20, 30% in the course of six months because people couldn't sell their properties. That's just, it's just not there. So it's a completely different market than, than we saw in, in the last recession. I think we're gonna bounce back very nicely. I believe that um, the worst case scenario is across the board values may go down 5%. That's the worst case scenario. Yes, in certain pockets, in the, in the luxury mar markets, on the west side of Los Angeles, for example, or in some high-end areas, in, in, or in New York, for example, which was already problematic leading up into the pandemic, Yes, they're going to be challenged coming out of this. But as a whole, I think the real estate market is very healthy. And I think that we are, we are not in a decline. If, uh, if and when this economy um, bottoms out, it will not be because of real estate. I think real estate will be one of the things to help it get out of the economy, out of, out of the recession that we're having. So I just think it's a completely different, completely different uh, scenario than what we had 10, 12 years ago. And people aren't realizing that. They're not real estate people. They're just finance people. They just see, like, I, I don't know what the future is. Therefore, stop, stop giving out money. Yeah, it's, all, it's almost like a, a projection from, like, a extrapolation from that. There's a lot of financiers and, and big brains on Wall Street that are trying to uh, dabble in the real estate space and, and the economics of real estate. When, uh, it, like, it's interesting in 2008, we were kind of like the first one in, real estate was like the first one in and the last one out, right? And then, so here, um, it kind of looked to me like we're kind of the last ones in, first ones out, hopefully. 
So um, where I saw, I saw a pause, we saw this huge drop in the stock market and things like that. And then, then lending kind of uh, started the, the, the kind of light switch I felt like kind of turned off because people were like, I'm not sure what to do. And then they said, okay, this a week later, it's like, okay, it's not as bad as we thought. Let's, let's keep, keep lending. And so there was that kind of, you hit a wall, you get stunned. Like you said, you get punched in the face, the, the very famous Mike Tyson quote. And, um, and uh, then you come out and, and say, okay, let's figure this out. And that's kind of what we saw in my business. We saw a pause button for about two weeks. And so my April, my transactions typically in my company are somewhere around 15 to 18 transactions a month. In April, we saw nine. So that's what happened at the end of March. And what happened and now in May, we see 24. So what really happened was those transactions that were going to happen in April, they just kind of put the pause button. Like, I'm not sure I, I'm not uncomfortable right. to move. I'm, I'm not sure about this. Let's figure it out. Some people, uh, their houses dropped out of escrow because the buyers got scared, you know? And so they put it back on the market and boom, it's back under contract, if not for a little bit more money. And so what we've been tracking in, in ours, and like you said, the luxury market could be totally different. I, that's, I've lost my shirt, the $70,000 loss, $50,000 loss, usually in the six, $700,000 range in my small markets. And I stay in that first and second time home buyer. For every house that goes pending and contingent right now, only a half a house replaces it. So we're already at two months of inventory. So now when we go down to a month and a half of inventory or one month of inventory, um, when you have a vacant house, a fixed up nice house, it's, it's ready to, to buy. It's in that first time home buyer market. There's a huge demand for it. There's not enough housing. People are wanting to move out of their apartment buildings and complexes and move into single family houses with a yard now. They want a home office. They want these different things. Then we see this demand go up. And when demand goes up, there's only one thing that can happen. You know, so it's interesting to, to see that and see what's what's going to happen. And when I was talking to Bruce, I mean, we mentioned Bruce, he was really talking about foreclosures and distressed property driving the marketplace. So if we do see that a year down the road, two years down the road, three years down the road, then that's when we're going to start saying, hey, okay, we need to start making some changes. Maybe the real estate market does see this lag of something that happens. But until that happens, like all the forbearance that's happening right now, following that trend and seeing what it is. And if that stuff pans out and they tack those months on to the end of their loans and it doesn't really cripple people and the economy opens up, people go back to work, then the real estate market shouldn't see, we see this kind of pause button. And when that comes off, like even right now, I go to the, I'm in Tennessee, May 1st, the gym opened in Tennessee. The restaurants are open at like half capacity. You got to sit six feet away. There's lots of things that are going on every state. It's very local. Everything's a little bit different, but I don't know for me, I, like you said, you, you said temporary crisis. And I feel like that's kind of what it is. I think we're starting to wake up, just make maybe some changes. So what does that look like for anchor loans? So what did you guys do and what are you doing going forward now in lending? Did you just lend through this? No problem. Was it adjustment um, that you guys made? So I'd like to be able to say we just lent through it. No problem. But, uh, and, and to some degree that's true, but what we did do is, is mitigate some of the risk that we perceived that was now in the marketplace by lowering some of the leverage ratios that we were using as caps for our loan, right? So be, before we might on, a, on a, what we classify as a tier A or top level elite borrower, we might've lent something like 90 or 95% of the purchase and 100% of the repair costs. We're capping those people out at 90% of the repair, 90% uh, of the cost. So it's a, it's a slight decrease in the leverage, uh, but it gives our lenders, our capital providers some comfort and it, and it helps us overall um, with, with the story that we have to tell. That, that was my wife. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... uh, so, so, that's, so that's the most part. We've, we've, some of, we've instituted 
um, some credit scoring as a minimum. We didn't used to have uh, a, a bottom per se. So for example, if you really had a, a terrible FICO in the 500s, if there were other mitigating factors, you had a good deal, you had cash reserves, we'd be able to do that. To some extent now, the, the, those borrowers are finding it difficult to get financed. Uh, but for the most part, it's just the leverage haircut that we've done. Okay. So, and, and what did it do? Like maybe, what did it do to you guys? Did it drive you guys obviously out of the office back at home? Like what was that oh, yeah. like for you uh, as obviously the CEO of a company that has hundreds of people working for you? Like what kind of, was it a nightmare for you? What was that like? So we, uh, about 10 days before the stay at home order that was issued here by our governor, Governor Newsom in California on May 19th, I had my technology team look into what would it take for us to transition into a fully remote working environment. And then on May 13th, again, about a week before the issue was ordered, I believed it was necessary for the health and well-being and safety of, of our team members to do that. And so we, we did a three-phase transition over the course of two days where people were transitioned. They took home either their workstation, their laptop, they were set with remote login entries into our system and in our offices. And it went very smoothly over the course of about 48 hours. We went from being 100% in the office to we were 95% in the office. We still had about eight people, what we called our best team, our business essential strategic team that would go into the office, uh, not full time, but from time to time and, and, and do what needed to be done, open the mail, do some scanning, deposit checks, those sorts of things. Um, and, and right now we've, we've scaled up that best team back up to about 15, people max. There's probably no more than eight people, eight to 10 people at any one time, but 15 people over the course of the week. Some go in two hours on one day. Some, some people go in a, an hour each day just to do a specific task. But for the most part, we're all working remotely. Um, it's, it's been going pretty well. It's, um, it's, it's all the challenges that working remotely has. Right? It's, not, it's not as efficient um, although we've all become way more experts at using Zoom meetings or Google Meets or those sorts of things, um, which I believe is actually more efficient than holding the meetings that we typically have. We all sat around at a conference table and we spent 10 minutes chit-chatting beforehand and 15 minutes chit-chatting afterwards. And, and now our Zoom meetings are like on time, get in, get out, get done, get, be efficient. So it, it's good and it's bad. I've never been a big proponent of working remotely um, because I believe there are three huge obstacles the bed, the, the TV, and the refrigerator. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big problem. But having said that, we're, we're in a situation now where our, our team, um, our, half of our team are saying, hey, I, I really like this. Can I do this full-time going forward? And the other half of the team is, when are we going to open up the office again? I want to get back in the office and be around people. So um, it's, it's, it's worked out. It's worked out well. We've, I don't believe that our service has uh, diminished in any way, um, any significant way. Um, there, there have been some instances where we couldn't get access to certain paperwork that was delivered to the office and it took an extra day or two to, to do certain things. But for the most part, our clients have been extremely understanding. They, they know that we're not operating as efficiently as, as we were pre-pandemic. Uh, but for the most part, the, the company's just soldiered forth with, with, with a great team. That's impressive to hear because uh, I mean, I've, I have a team of like anywhere from 15 to 20 in the couple, two companies that I run. So about 35, 40 people and we're, we've been remote forever. And this, this, this pandemic actually drove me out of my house into an office 
because I have three little kids, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old who weren't in school anymore. So there's no possible way that I could do this right now with them screaming and running around the house. So um, I got the opposite. I was the person who was renting an office. I just happened to rent it on February 1st instead of like March 1st or, or, uh, or April 1st when I think the rates would have been a lot lower um, because they were trying to get rid of their office space. So, um, but it's been, it's been good that, for me. That also speaks to a little bit, I think, of what's going to be propping up the real estate market. And people have talked about that is that I think there's going to be a lot more remote working environments on a go forward basis, not just from our company or your company, but from all companies across the, across the board, across the specter. What does that mean? I think people who are living in apartments or even smaller homes, like you say, with kids around or whatnot, are finding out, hey, if I don't have a house with a nice office where I can work in, so I think those demands are, are not going to be insignificant in, in driving home, uh, home purchases. I totally agree with you. Absolutely. Like, where did everybody have to get driven during this pandemic, right? Back to their house. And they're looking around, realizing they got home. I mean, when I drive by Lowe's and Home Depot right now during the lockdown, it, there, there's a line out the door. There's more cars in that parking lot than I've ever seen when there's no pandemic going on. People are doing, you know, updates to their house. They're trying to figure it out. They're probably really upset with their, their space, their layout. They don't have what they want. The features they are looking online right now. They're trying, I mean, homes, I, I, we have a lot of friends and I, if I had a hundred houses right now that were fixed up, ready to go on the market, I'd be a pretty happy camper. And um, <laughs> it's interesting because it, a lot of people are saying the opposite right now, but I'm telling you for every house that goes contingent, we're looking at it. It's 0 0.5, 0 0.6 houses that are going back on the market. They're just, we're just not in, you know, in, infilling what we're removing from the marketplace. And like you said, it makes sense. You can, I can, I can shift every number and headline to, I'm in, in my mechanical engineering background and aeronautical engineering background. I have to create data and charts to like when we're doing experiments, we're defining things, we're using this data to tell a story and I can tell whatever story I want with that data that I have, depending on how I want to pitch it. So I realized that in my master's degree, when, when I was getting data, I was like, yeah, can I, can I tell the story with what I have or not? And when you say, yeah, the, uh, in April that real estate sales are down 50%, the market is tanking. Yeah, that makes sense. Nobody's putting their house on the market. Nobody wants to move. Nobody wants a realtor coming in their house and getting measurements and appraisers coming in and all this stuff. Is, they're just waiting. It's like a pause button. And I'm, I'm sure in two, three months, we're going to see that spike and uh, we're going to go. I, it's interesting. It's like the spring and um, summer season is just kind of moving a little bit toward a couple months. And uh, people are still going to want to move when their kids are go you know, going to different schools. Terry Berger, you guys know him from our mastermind group and one of the board of directors. He just bought a house and he wanted to get his daughter into a different school district before the year started. So he sold his house and bought another one. And that stuff's still going to happen. So um, what's, uh, I, I don't want to leave the, uh, this interview without asking you, like, um, what, why would somebody want to work with a hard money lender? So what benefits do they provide? And then what about working with you? Like, what do you guys provide that's special and different and, and would track, attract them to anchor loans? So the, as to the first question, why do you want to work with a hard money lender? If, if you have capital to fulfill whatever needs that you have in your business right now, without the hard money lender, uh, this, our message to those investors is you don't need us. Frankly, you don't need, if you, if you have cash and you're, and you work on one deal at a time and you have enough cash for the purchase and the repairs and so forth, or you work on three deals at a, whatever the number is, and you have enough cash or you have enough private investors and you're happy with the returns you need to give to your private investors and the operations involved in that, you don't need us. Where people need us is when they don't have enough capital. 
when they when they when they believe they're being restricted by the capital they have and a person will say to me well if i buy a deal with my money i can make forty thousand dollars on that deal when i'm done as an example and if i buy with anchors money i only make twenty five thousand let's just say as an example and i can do one of those deals a year and my response to you is well, wouldn't you rather do two deals a year and make 25 on two deals and make $50,000? Isn't this a business? Isn't this, this is not a per deal. This is not, you know, this is not like baseball where you have statistics. It, it's a numbers game, right? You're in a business. If you can do two deals a year and make $50,000 with someone else's money instead of one deal a year, a year and only make 40,000, that's where we come in. That's where we can help you, right? It's the, it's the power of leverage and multiplication. If that makes sense, we can be there for you. Now, why would you want to use Anchor as, a, as opposed to any other lender? Well, the, the, one of the main reasons that we've always touted that many investors really didn't understand or, or truly believe was a, big, was a big plus was certainty of capital. Just what happened here in, in this pandemic, we never stopped funding. In, in 21 years of Anchor, we have never made a loan commitment to a borrower and then not funded it. We're, we're not in the model of many of the smaller lenders or even private investors of, yes, I'll do that deal. And then let me go on a money hunt to find the money to do your deal. And if I can't find the money, I don't do your deal. Now, some of the, the larger lenders don't have that, but some of the larger lenders have had historical issues with, I'll commit to doing your deal. And then at some point in time, a week, three days before the deal is, is set to fund, oh, I need to change the terms. I need to, I, my loan amount can't be that much. It'll go lower or whatnot. That's just not the way that we operate here. So certainty of funding is, is, is critical to us because that's our reputation. The, the, the other main things that we provide that many other lenders provide also is just a question of quality and, and, and quantity is how much added value can your lender bring to your team? We're, we're just a team member on your team. If we or any other lender look at as themselves as being your capital provider and we're gonna make money from you and then you're on your own, that, in my belief, is a recipe for a short-term success, but not a long-term success. We're invested in our clients' success. We want them to be successful because 85% of the loans we do on a regular basis, month after month, are to clients we've lent to before. Therefore, if you're not successful, you're not going to come back to us for another loan. We want you to be successful so we can keep providing capital. So what does that mean? That means we will help you with valuing your properties. We, we, we have, we've had situations in which investors have come to us with a deal. We can structure a very safe loan, but we will tell the investor, we don't want to do that loan because you're not going to make any money. And we'll explain to them why, because that's a short-term win for us, but it's not for you. At the end of the deal, if you as the investor make no money or you end up losing money, what, you're going to, what are you going to think of your lender who helped you finance that deal, that new bet? So, We'll help you with valuations. We'll help you with your property insurance. We'll help you read title reports. We'll help you clear up title reports. We'll help you with your permits. If you need to get permit issues or you have, you have issues there. On the back end, if you have a problem marketing your property and you want recommendations either for agents or marketing strategy, you know, we, we've done this, like I mentioned before, we've bought over 1,200 properties between 2010 and 2012 and then ended up fixing and selling them ourselves. Some of them we wholesale. We're, we're, we're pretty expert at marketing properties as well. We know what needs to be done. We, 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 the, the, under, the, the, the concept of 
just setting it out there for the highest price possible and then just drip, drip, dripping the, the price declines is not your best marketing strategy. It might be in a, in a, in a, in a, in a exploding sell, in a, in a truly, really, really, really strong seller's market, you can make no mistakes. That's true to that. But that's not where we are right now. The real estate market evolves through cycles. That's one of Bruce Norris's big thing, the different cycles of the real estate markets, right? So it evolves through cycles. We're in that last fourth quadrant of that real estate market right now, probably heading back around towards the beginning again. But, but there, as an investor, you need, need to understand where you are in that cycle, what is going to be successful for you, what you need, where your weaknesses are, where you need help. That's where we have a large team and we can help you in all sorts of different areas. So those services we provide just as a matter of course of, of what we do. There's no charge for that. Uh, investors come to us and ask us for valuation. We'll be happy to do that, even if we don't get the loan. We're just there to provide service, provide information. Uh, that's another key thing that we do. I, I, I'm, I've been on a bunch of podcasts. We have blogs. We have uh, newsletters that we issue. We're trying to educate the entire uh, fix and flip niche, the entire fix and flip industry. Better people are educated, the better decisions they can make, the more successful they can be. We want this industry to be stronger, healthier, better, just like your organization does. It's the same, it's the same concept. We don't want to be painted by the, by the paintbrush of the outliers who are doing things the wrong way that give us all a bad name. So the more we can educate people, the better decisions they can make. And sometimes they make the decision not to come to Anchor as our lender, and that's fine. We're, we don't pretend to be the perfect lender for everybody in the world. We're not trying to go under everybody's business. We believe we're a good outlet for, for you or anyone else who, who has done their homework and has found that niche where their business model is a good synergistic match with our business model. You know, I can, I can totally relate to that because, you know, there's a, you guys are in 47 states. A lot of lenders aren't, right? They're in half the country or a couple states or very local and specific. And I've done lots of deals with, um, when I was just starting to wholesale, there would be private money lenders and hard money lenders that would come in to fund some of the flippers that I worked with. And the day before closing, they wouldn't get their funding. And so I just eventually said, no more hard money lenders. Like I just will not accept any more hard money loans as these wholesale deals. Because I, I, I had to buy the house. You know, the day before <laughs> I got to buy the house or I got to give you know, huge earnest money back. If I, if I, I, I move my money around and to, to the, another property, cause this one was wholesaled. And now I'm, I'm the one who the seller talked to. I'm the one who built the relationship with that seller. I'm the one who's I'm, I'm on the hook and somebody can turn their back on a seller, but I can't like, we got to figure it out. And so I, I, there's a lot of lenders um, that have come and gone like uh, day by day that are gone now or, Somebody who says they're a big, and I see it inside of all the private Facebook groups and online. Yeah, I'm, I'm a hard money lender. I'm a private lender. You know, hey, talk to me, send me a private message, all this stuff. And, and it's same thing in the real estate education space. Obviously, I run a mastermind group. Uh, our goal is to put the people out of business that send people to the call centers and, uh, you know, the bait and switch at the live event of, hey, buy the $60,000 thing, even though you have no experience. So all of that stuff, for me, if we're not the right fit for you, totally understand. Like, that's okay. Same, same thing as you, Steve. It's like, um, we know we're attracting the people that we want to be a part of. And you mentioned something that I think is really important. It, I, we talk about this all the time. There's different kind of legs of the stool of who you have in your flipping business or wholesaling business or real estate investment business. And, and some of them are those, those partners that are like a CPA, a lawyer, a hard money lender is a great partner for you, especially if you're just getting going, or even if you're experienced and maybe moving into a new market is they're helping you do evaluations. And when they tell you 
that that valuation is off and they don't see it, like don't fight them. Don't go to the next lender and just go through six different lenders that are telling you the same thing. Like I, we get emotionally involved in these transactions and we can't see the truth past what we think it is. And I've been there, believe me. The times that I've lost money, I look back and I go, my trusted advisors were telling me not to do that deal and I did it anyway. What was I proving to myself that, that, that I know better than the professionals? So take that stuff to heart. They can be a great partner for you. Um, like my EOS coach is, is big. The, my hiring coach, I just brought on Matt White. He talked about the personality profiles. You mentioned the people that want to go back to the office and the people that want to stay home. You got the high Bs in the culture index or the high I's in the disc. They want to go back to the office and see all their friends. The low I's are like, oh, I just love my, my house. I don't have to talk to anybody. I can get my work done and I can focus. These people aren't talking to me at the water cooler and all that stuff. So that, that those, those different advisors that we have and coaches inside of our business are so important. And a lot of times we, we think that we know it all or we can do it all. And you've got to bring those people in. Attorneys, um, I mean, you name it, business consultants, mastermind groups, coaches, mentors, all that stuff. Really, really important. So um, before we go, I and mean, we're running out of time here, but in wrap up, like who can, who, can, who do you guys lend to? I think like, I, can anybody come to you first time flippers? Do you guys only work with people who have done 50 deals, hundred deals? Like, what does that look like? If I'm a flipper, like how, you know, do I fit your criteria? What does that look like? So we lend to across the spectrum. We tier our borrowers into four tiers with A, B, C, D, not creative, but that's what they are. <laughs> Um, and the A borrowers are your top, your elite borrowers. These are the guys that are, might be buying 10, 15 properties a year. What we, we, call, them, we call those elite borrowers. Um, and there's a bunch of other criteria, but just as a general rule, that's kind of, that's kind of where the cutoff is. Uh, but most of those elite borrowers are buying 10, 15 properties a month, right? Like yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have our tier B borrowers and professional borrowers. And these are the guys that are typically doing, say, three to three to seven, three to eight deals a year, something like that. They know what they're doing. They've had years of experience. And then you have your D, your D borrowers at the bottom are your, your first time guys have done one or two deals before and your C borrowers have done a few deals, but never more than one at a time and so forth. And we will, we will lend to all of those four different tiers. Uh, there's a different leverage structure for each one. There's a different pricing structure for each one. Um, we won't lend to a new time borrower that doesn't prove to us that they know what they're doing. So if you're just, hey, I just took a course. Here's the book I proved to you. I took my course, but explain to me what ARV means. Again, I don't understand what that. You know, if they don't know what they're doing, we won't lend to them. We're not. We're not necessarily there. We don't provide a course per se to teach you how to be a flipper and then be our borrower. No, but we, we will help you if you need to. But if you know what you're doing and you've never done a deal before, typically the guys that have never done a deal before are your general contractors, your silent partners, the ones that were never had their name on a title, but they've been involved in real estate before. So they kind of know what they're doing, but they've never really been the captain with their hand on the steering wheel and, and directing the boat as to where it's going. Um, and so, and then they, they need to have enough cash reserves to make sense, to be able to, to handle the financing of, of the, either the repairs or the payments or whatever. So that's the bottom end, but we will deal with that. But most of our business, by, by far the vast majority of our business are in A and B borrowers. That's probably 80, 80, 85% of the, by number, the loans that we, that we do. Okay. Well, I, I know that our, our mastermind group has got a great relationship with you guys. You guys um, have a great deal for us and our members. Basically, um, you guys email me and say, hey, are these guys still active members? Um, we have a, a great deal worked out with you guys. How are our guys doing with you? Are they doing okay? 
they're doing they're doing phenomenal. The way awesome. I know they're doing okay is because I never ever see their names on on any of our default lists. Right. That's, that's good. That's well, that's good. The, that's good feedback yeah. from one CEO yep. to another. So um, it's good because I'm not hearing about it either. I'm just hearing about the fact that they're obviously growing their business, you guys are helping them uh, leverage and support that. You mentioned like when to use a, um, a hard money lender and you're totally right. You know, I, I, I was borrowing a couple million dollars when I was growing and then I needed to access to, you know, capital wasn't gonna slow me down. I had the deal flow, I didn't want capital to slow me down. We have the infrastructure, we have the operations built out. I wasn't gonna stop for the capital. And frankly, I was spending a lot of my time out raising money when I should have been building the operations and systems inside my company. And so, you know, a good, a good mix of both of those is what we have right now, which is fantastic. And I'm glad to hear that our, uh, our, our mastermind group and our people are, are doing the right thing by uh, their loans. And I mean, really like integrity is so important to us for personal and professional development, hardworking stewardship and uh, ownership inside of my core values. And I try to attract those people, like you said, um, the people that are working with you. So um, I think it's, uh, it's a great relationship. I'm happy to, to have, uh, have you guys as partners too, because that that's what I look at it as well. Like I have these trusted advisors or partners that come in that help me with my business and you guys help me with, obviously somebody comes into our mastermind group, they can uh, leverage some great financing um, with you guys and that helps me grow my business, right? So, yep. um, so how can somebody reach out to you um, and if they want to find out more about Anchor Loans, they want to get uh, quoted, they want to start getting underwritten, they want to start doing deals with you guys, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, well, give you the standard line, all the usual places, right? You can go to our website, anchorloans.com. Uh, they can email me directly, very simple email, it's steve at anchorloans.com. Uh, our, our phone number's there, we're, we're all over social media, we have a Facebook page, uh, we're, we're largest on, on Instagram and, and LinkedIn. If you look for Anchor, it's not hard to find us. We're, we're okay. There. Are you sure you want this many people to email the, the CEO directly and uh, not somebody else? That, that, if they want to email me directly, I'll be happy to take the email and, and then send them to the appropriate person to get handled you know, with the appropriate personal touch. Awesome. Yeah. I appreciate that. That's really yeah, nice. I don't, I don't hide behind my title. I'm, All right. This is a working... It doesn't sound like you do either. So. No, I don't. Every email goes out and gets responded to me. Uh, fortunately, a lot of that stuff can get redirected to my team automatically, which is nice. Um, but yeah, uh, I, it's nice to see. Like, how awesome is that? You got a president and CEO of a company that has 150 people working in the office, got a bunch of people overseas, a bunch of other people out in the field that is uh, dropping their email address to 25,000 listeners. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Don't crush them, please. I'm going to tell you right now. Um, <laughs> Go to anchorloans.com, fill out the form. You can, I, I would love it if you guys let them know that um, you heard them on Seven Figure Flipping Podcast so that they can know that um, obviously Steve spent his time uh, wisely here talking to us. And what our community is, is so great about is, is you know, finding, uh, you know, supporting other businesses, the people that we bring in, the people that we recommend and refer. And that means a lot to me that you guys uh, trust me to uh, with a kind of my stamp of approval. And it's, you know, the people that I bring on the podcast are people that I've worked with, people that I have a great relationship with, and uh, not just anybody that um, that comes in and says, hey, I want to be on your show, which we get a lot of. So, um, Steve, thanks so much for your time. Any, any last things that you want to say to the listeners? Anything we missed or left out? Uh, well, I enjoyed the talk. We, we, we talked for, it seemed like only five or 10 minutes, but I think we've been here much longer. It's gone, gone, gone very, very quickly. And I appreciate that. I, I, I mean, I didn't come in with an agenda. I appreciated the questions. The only other thing that, that I would like to say, and that is, Bill, I want to I thank you again for your service to our country. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And uh, depending on when we put this out, we've got um, 
Memorial Day coming up, obviously, which is a, a tough time for a lot of service members. We, uh, we, I was, I had the honor this year of giving away a house. We, we bought, we renovate, and we, it took about a year and a half for us to do it, to figure out how to do it and how to raise some money and, and figure out how to do it. But we, we gave away a, a house, a fully renovated, fully flipped house. I mean, granite countertops, just like we would and put it on the market to a gold star family member. So this woman lost her husband um, in combat and she has two daughters and she's moving in. Um, probably by the time this comes out, she will have moved into her new house from Alabama down to Pensacola um, and be living in this new house, uh, mortgage-free, 100% free. It's just absolutely amazing that we get to do stuff like that. I've lost, uh, there was a, if you guys listen to the podcast that I did with Greg Sheehan, he was my commanding officer in San Diego. And when I was there, we lost a helicopter and four incredible Americans in that helicopter. And bullet one zero, and I was actually just looking at pictures of it um, yesterday, and looking at um, grave sites and all these things. One of the one of the the, the aircraft commander was buried at Arlington, um, and uh, we're getting ready to dedicate that uh, episode of the TV show that we're doing on Monday night on Memorial Day that we're launching uh, to them. So um, obviously, I, I really appreciate that to everybody out there. We're doing we're also doing a veterans event on May 29th and 30th for. Um, to try to give away another house to a family member. We're raising all this money for charity and uh, doing that. So um, I would say, you know, it, I don't know when, if this comes out after Memorial Day, which it likely will, um, just remember for next Memorial Day, there's Veterans Day and there's Memorial Day. And Memorial Day is for those that have been, that have fallen. Um, and so pay, pay the service and the respects. Thank you for your country. But um, Veterans Day is the time to like celebrate our, our military and Memorial Day is the time to remember those that have fallen and come before us and lay down their life for the best country in the world. So um, it's my honor to serve that way. And I've had, I mean, there's so many people in my logbook, my, my pilot logbook that are just no longer with us because they uh, perished in an accident and training and different things. And um, we forget about that a lot of times that it, it happens on a regular basis and people are out there uh, volunteering to serve. So, so I, I didn't mean to go on a rant here, but with Memorial Day coming up, it's like one of the holidays that I think that um, we, we miss out on the purpose of that a lot of times, uh, even, even military members. And we got to remember um, those people that are, um, that are like grieving and, and remembering their, their fallen spouse or their family member or something like that during that time. And then what can we do to help support that? So if you know somebody that's driving around with a, um, with a gold star on the back of their car or two gold stars or three gold stars, um, that's somebody who lost uh, somebody in, in combat or in, in the military. So remember that um, when you see them, um, you know, just say, uh, say thank I mean, their, their service was incredible too. So Okay. All right. I'm off it. Thanks, Steve. Um, that's, a, that's I really awesome appreciate what you guys did there. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's something that we've been trying to figure out how to do. And um, we, we couldn't figure out the grants and all the donations from Lowe's and Home Depot. We were trying to get to the right people. And I said, you know what, I, I, this house cannot sit any longer. Let's just, we'll just put the money in, just go do it. We'll get this one done. Then we'll figure out how to do it uh, cheaper. So uh, I, I've never had a better phone call than calling um, Kelly and telling her she thought that she was getting um, she thought that she was getting interviewed to see if she would get the house and she had already been awarded the house behind the scenes and I was able to tell her that um, she's going to have a brand new house and uh, wow. she can live there and it's, it's like nothing I don't know that was that was an experience that I never thought that I'd be able to do and so what I I don't say any of that stuff to brag to you guys that are listening what I do say it to, to you is to challenge you to say like, what can you do? Like if you're building this business, what is it all about? Is it about an impact or is it about making a bunch of money? Because for us, I mean, all that, all that money that the company don't, that pumped into that house, donated, um, sure, that could have come to the bottom line, but um, I, 
I, I'm challenging you guys. What can you do? You can do a lot more than you think that you can do. And I would say, you know, in, in this conversation with Steve, with Anchor is the, the hard money lender, lending space, all the different things and partners that we had allowed us to grow our business to the point that we could do that. So it's because of everybody else that was involved, the team, everybody, that we were able to do something like that. And then I challenge you to figure out what can you do. I mean, Tyler Jensen gave away, uh, he re renovated a house over Christmas for a, a single mom. They did the whole renovation for free. She had an entirely renovated house for free and they did it in like five days. And we've got other people that have, we've raised $150,000, $200,000 for charity at our events. It's just been amazing. The community, the outpouring that we have for impact is so impressive. So um, I challenge all of you guys to say, you can do more. Trust me, you can do more in your flipping business. You can do more in your wholesaling business. You can do more for your community, your family, your church, all of those things. And um, just with the help of you know, some different people that have paved the way in the path before you and just kind of take that system and figure out how you can do it too. It's, it, it's doable. So, uh, Steve, thanks so much for hanging out with me. I had a great time. Um, you're right. I'm looking at the clock going, uh Oh, I got to get to my next meeting. Uh, but, uh, and there's probably somebody waiting for me, but I, I had a great time, especially when you started talking about poker game over for me. I, I could, we could have talked about that for an hour for sure. I could, I could tell you stories for hours on that, but yeah, I, we I, might I, need to I, do that. I, sometime. I appreciate you. I appreciate you having me on here, Bill. It's been great. Thanks, Steve. And uh, take care of the, those 150 staff members of yours. Make sure that they're safe. And uh, I appreciate everything that you're doing for the seven-figure flipping community. Thanks. Thank you. All right. I'll see you later. Bye. Okay. Bye. Hey, it's Bill again, and I want to personally invite you to our biggest event of the year, Flip Hacking Live. If you could copy the exact deal sources, marketing strategies, negotiation tactics, and business systems of the most successful house flippers and wholesalers in the nation, how would that change your business? Flip Hacking Live is a three-day event that we do just once per year, and it's happening October 15th through the 17th in Orlando, Florida. We bring in the nation's top wholesalers and house flippers to walk you through everything they're doing how they're marketing directly to sellers, how they're picking up discounted off-market properties, how they're doubling their close ratio with the right negotiation tactics, how they're raising millions of dollars in private money, the things they're doing that other investors aren't doing, all of it. These are the guys and gals who are actively doing deals at a high volume in today's market all across the country. You get their full attention for three days. They have agreed to hold nothing back and you'll be right there with them so you can ask questions and get clarification on anything that you need. This is your chance to hack the nation's top flippers and wholesalers and ethically steal their exact strategies and systems. All you have to do is take notes, ask questions, and apply what you learn. But first, you need to get a ticket. We've sold out every year and ticket prices go up every few months. So go to fliphackinglive.com right now and get your tickets today. Fliphackinglive.com, October 15th through the 17th in Orlando, Florida. This is an event that you cannot afford to miss.